Alrighty, great to be together again this, together again this morning. Awesome worship time together. Thank you, Colton and team. As our uh, kids were growing up, one of our favorite family activities was water skiing, or for the kids, mostly wakeboarding. I didn't do it often enough to, uh, to, to become good at it, as good as I wanted to be, but in water skiing, I discovered that although I did not really do enjoy doing stuff in the water, I love doing stuff on the water, especially if it involves speed. And um, there came a point at which I felt that in order for me to take the next step in development as a water skier, I needed a real slalom ski. Two full boots and one ski to give more stability and control as I turned. I came across a decent used family ski uh, or a ski that a family no longer needed because their kids had all gone to the dark side, wakeboarding. And the first time I skied on it, I discovered that because of the concave uh, design of the base of the ski, there's, there's no way. At least it was really hard for the ski to go straight. And even inside the wake, it just sort of forced you to lean one direction or the other. It was designed to turn. Love that. And along with some coaching, it helped me to get at least somewhat better. And then our kids left home and go on, got on to other things, and we long, no longer spent time at the lake, and I got some injuries that prevented from me from trying, and so I retired a few years ago. We were spending some time in the Okanagan, the cabin of the Le one of Ladonna's family members. Every morning, I'd look down from the deck. I could feel the calling in the air. I started grieving, second-guessing my decision to retire, and then LaDonna's brother, who was somewhat younger than me, came up to be with us at the cabin for a few days just before we left. And he just has this way of presenting something in such a manner that it just, it just seems like the right thing, like a good thing. It's so hard to say no to him. Two whole days, I resisted. And then he, he just knew the button to press. Now, just think, you could set a record. That'll probably never be broken. The oldest guy to get up on one ski behind this boat. And even though it had been almost 10 years since I'd skied, and even though the last time I tried, it was him that was driving the boat, I could not get up on one ski. or I, I, I just could no longer say no. And so I said, okay, three tries here. Three tries, that's all. If I don't make it, I'm done for good. We went down, we got the boat ready, got us ready, and on the second try, I made it. It felt so good. I, I remembered my commitment to LaDonna as I was out there, which was, promise me that you don't do anything stupid, nothing too aggressive. At your age, getting up is good enough. So I took it easy. And, and then it just, it, just, it just started feeling so good. And just as I realized I was starting to, to wear out, get a little tired, something in me said, I, I know I won't be as good as I once was, but could it be that just once I could be as good as I once was? Unfortunately, there was a camera on board to record the event. <laughs> you see, turning, turning well is never easy. Most of us have stories of, of fender benders, 
parking lot dingers. Not of ourselves, of course, but, but someone we were with or someone who was in the car beside us who was learning to back out of a parking stall. Anybody? <laughs> You've been there. You've seen it. Door dingers. Just hadn't learned to turn well. We have a nephew who's doing a business startup, which is, was chosen to be part of a Canada-wide uh, incubator program for startups. And he got paired with a successful business in downtown Vancouver that provides office space and mentoring. And, and a huge piece of learning is knowing when and how to pivot. Recognizing the signs being willing to admit that the direction you started will not take you the distance and using your learning as perhaps some of the elements which you built and perhaps some words from an outside person who calls the emperor on having no clothes, pivoting in a different direction. It's not easy. Not that, and, and, and it's, not, it's a lot to do. It's because of the ego investment we have in the direction we started. Learning to turn well. That's what a lot of life is about. Life where the stakes are a whole lot higher, but also where our own ego involvement in the direction we've taken is a whole lot bigger. Learning to turn well before we get to the end of the rope is what life with God is hugely about. In the zigzag journey of life, we all come to times when we feel, or at least we begin to realize somewhere back in our mind, that if we don't turn, we're going to not end up where we wanted to be. As we come to chapter 3 in our journey through the book of Jonah, we come to the scene in which God says to Jonah, okay, Jonah, the rope's only so long. Time to pivot and come my way. Some of us resist that turn until it's forced on us, like Jonah. And by that time, there's just no way to make it look smooth. Sometimes we need a little nudge. And today, because we're talking about turning, that's what this whole chapter 3 is about, we're going to give you an opportunity at the end of the service today to, to, to declare a, a, a bit of a turn. Would you use it as an opportunity to pivot before you get to the end of the rope? If there's something that comes to your mind as we're talking this morning, be ready at the end of the service to say, Lord, it's time. I'm turning your way. So turn to Jonah, Jonah chapter 3, and if you have a Bible app, turn there, or if you don't have a Bible app, download that one right now. It's an easy one to download, an easy one to use. Jonah chapter 3, and as we read this chapter, it's a short chapter, uh, just, we're going to read the whole chapter. Jonah has just been spit out of the fish on dry ground, probably not where he wants to be, on the shore of the Mediterranean, close to the Jerusalem temple where he wants to go, but probably on the shore closest to Nineveh, where God wants him to go. And so... As we pick up the story, think about, think about who it is in this story that pivots. Who turns? Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah finally obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. What that probably means, it took three days to walk around the city, not three days to have coffee with everybody. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. 
he proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and compassion with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we shall not perish. And God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways. He had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. So you see how this chapter is all about turning? He turns. Well, Jonah turns. <laughs> he finally obeys God, goes the direction that God had called him to go in the first place. Here's where the skiing analogy breaks down, by the way. Jonah discovers that this is not a ski rope he can let go of. It's more like a calf at the end of a cowboy's tie-down rope. Okay, Jonah, enough of your weight. We're going my way. God gets pretty specific. It's almost like he doesn't trust Jonah. Look at, look at how chapter 3 begins with how the book began. In, in, in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. The, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Chapter 1, go to the great city of Nineveh. Chapter 2, go to the great, great city of Nineveh. This is like repeat. Jonah, I'm not changing my mind. This ain't going away. And then there's a little difference. This time it gets a little more specific. Not just chapter 1 preach against Jonah, or against Nineveh, whatever that means. Jonah, you're going to say the words I'm telling you to say. The fact that God has to repeat himself and get even more specific might be just a hint that God knows Jonah hasn't really turned in here. Doing the outward thing, but in here, he has not turned, right? And what is the message? Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. There's one thing that's missing in this entire chapter, it, 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 it seems, and, and it leads me to wonder whether, yes, Jonah told what God told him to say, but did he tell everything God told him to say? There's no indication that Jonah ever told him about God about who he really is and what it is that he really wanted, the God whose holiness has been violated but whose compassion is as pure and his right, as his righteousness, the God whose mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, in the Older Testament in our, in our Bible, most of the translations that you might have, uh, there, there are two primary, there's, there's multiple, but there are two primary words used to describe God. They're both in this chapter, by the way, but, but Jonah uses neither of them. And the Ninevites don't use the name of God. Jonah should have mentioned them to them. The one word in, in your Bible, and if you look at uh, the first uh, verse, first two verses, it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah. The, the word Lord is all in capitals. That's, that's a signal. If you look at the beginning of your Bible and the introduction, it'll explain to you why, but basically... The, the, the word that the Israelites knew for the God who had revealed himself to them was Yahweh. 
And because they were so afraid of breaking the first commandment, that you shouldn't take God's name in vain, that they decided not to use God's name. So they substituted the word Lord in there. And so that's why it's capitalized. That's, that's a reference to the covenant name of God as he revealed himself to the Israelites. Not just a God idea. The real God. Not just a generic God. The God above all gods. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. The, the other word is the generic term for God. Still, yes, a most high God, the real God, is generic, Elohim. But that's the word the kings of Nineveh used to talk about God. Is there any reference at all to God in Jonah's message? Forty days and Jonah will, or Nineveh will be overturned. Doesn't seem like it. Whatever it is that got through to the king of Nineveh, we don't know, but I think I know. I'll explain it later. I don't think it was Jonah. Because when the king of Nineveh refers to God, it's, it's this generic term. Not the name that Jonah knows, the God. And after verse 2, there's no, name, there's no mention of, of the covenant name for God in this chapter. And what does the king say? He says, who knows? Perhaps God will turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Who knows? Jonah knows. But Jonah says nothing. Jonah should be saying, yes, yes, you got it. That's what God wants. And yet, half-hearted and half-baked that it was, God still uses Jonah in spite of Jonah. And what happens? What happens is that Nineveh turns. As a matter of fact, it is very literally turning that the king commands the people to do. Verse 8, every person and animal must turn or put on sackcloth and must cry earnestly to God, and everyone must turn from their evil way of living and from the violence they do. And in response to the king, it's, it's the king, it says, they turn, they turn from their evil way of living. That word for turn is used four times in the last three verses of the chapter. Turning, pivot, pivoting is the theme of the chapter. And the fact that Nineveh would turn, turn away from their way to God's way, is actually the biggest miracle in the book. And the amazing thing, is that in two of those four times that it's used at the end of the chapter, who is it that turns? God turns. Verse 9, perhaps God might be willing to, most of our translations say something like relent or change his mind, but literally the word is turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we might not die. If you're, if you're into uh, literary structure at all and how, how it's used to communicate a message, you probably are interested in knowing that there's a what's called a chiastic structure here. There's a the first and the last one say we turn, we may turn, and the middle two say God may turn. The point of a chiastic structure like that is the middle part. This whole this whole message is at the heart of it is the chance that there is a God who turns. At the heart and the center of God is a God who turns. It's all about turning, turning poorly and turning well. So for the rest of our time together, we're going to explore two questions to go a little deeper into what this turning is all about. 
let's talk about in this chapter. Number one, why and when do we need to turn? Number two, how do we turn well? So let's look. Why and when do we need to turn? Well, we need to turn because, as Isaiah the prophet puts it, in somewhat the same time period as Jonah, all of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left the path, the direction that God is trying to pull us and call us to, to follow our own. Who has gone astray? All of us like sheep. Remember what the people were called to shout out? We are Jonah. That's us. Yes, zigs and zags are part of life, but sometimes, and probably more often than we would like to admit, our zigs and zags are the result of poor choices. They are not good directions. And isn't it true that it's the poorest of our choices, the most risky, the hardest, the strongest cuts we make, the ones about which we declare most vehemently, this is me, this is my way, and I have to take it. Those are the ones that are the hardest to pivot from, aren't they? This is my journey, and I have to take it. Oh, yeah, and it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. We've locked in on that so much, it just, it just seems right. Are you kidding me? There's no such thing as a journey without a destination. The question we should be asking more often, more thoughtfully, and more deeply is, will this direction really take me home? It's going somewhere. But is it really toward the home our heart wants? There's one reliable guide for that. It's the Word of God. If there is a God, who loves us and calls us, he's, he must want to show us where to go. And if our own internal guidance system is not tuned to the Word of God, just saying, well, this is my journey and I have to take it, that won't cut it. We've, probably all of us here have used GPS or helped our parents use GPS if they're driving. Has your GPS ever led you astray? Of course it has. A number of years ago, the first time I realized this, a number of years ago in the middle of winter, LaDonna and I took a ski trip to one of our favorite mountains, but we came to it from the opposite direction as we always had before. We came to it from Alberta, from just the southeast, instead of from BC, which would be coming from the northwest, the opposite direction. It was, it was getting dark as we got to the southeast sort of side of the mountain a bit of ways away and I was doing my thinking and kind of projecting ahead like, like a good leader should. And I'm saying to myself, you know what? We're still an hour, hour and a half away. But there are just as many skiers, at least as many skiers coming from the southeast as the northwest to this hill. There has to be more than one way up this mountain. There's got to be at least a, a, a local's road. So I consulted my trusty GPS while I was driving, and so LaDonna consulted it. And sure enough, I was right. And it said 30 minutes. Yes, what a bright boy am I. So we got off the number one highway, we crossed the Thompson River, and started our shortcut over the mountain. 
it's fine for the first 15, 20 minutes, far enough in that you really don't want to turn back. And it was LaDonna who first noticed that the road was getting narrower. And she knew better than to declare it as an observation. She just asked if I thought it was. Nah, it's not getting narrower. It's just getting darker outside. Looks that way. Just looks that way. And then some time further, we were directed by our trusty GPS down a road that looked more like an X with somebody's back 40. And I thought to myself, oh, okay, this must be the shortcut to the real road that's going to get us there. Shortcuts are good. But the next turn we were called to take, well, it, it hadn't been plowed. But the snow wasn't too deep, and, and there was at least one 4x4 four four track down that road. I know by now LaDonna was really quiet. I'm sure she was really praying. Perhaps she was even praying that God, in his mercy to her, would offer me a way to turn around without coming at me. I hesitated only slightly before heading down that road that hadn't been plowed. And in God's mercy, about 200 meters in, this trail was blocked by a gate that said private property. And yes, the shack was blocked. <laughs> but the GPS map was, was so clear. It was there. What happened? Was my GPS not working? Oh, it was working. It was doing exactly what it was programmed to do. The problem was with the map that the GPS was based on. And I did a little bit of research later. And, and discovered that, uh, especially in rural areas and sometimes small towns, sometimes the maps uh, that are downloaded simply to push something out, th they're simply planning maps. Where, where regional district planners at one point in time had intended to put a road when money became available or, or as the need arose and as they get rural people to accept the plan. Sometimes those maps in the city are, are out-of-date maps. The big concrete barrier where the road used to be, or it's now a one-way street, and the map hasn't yet been updated. You see, a GPS is only as accurate as the map on which it's relying. The map programmed into it, and th that is exactly the way it is with our way of thinking. We think we're thinking well, and in one sense, we are. The problem with our mind is not our thinking per se. It's the mental map upon which our thinking is based. We are guided by our thoughts, our thoughts are guided by our feelings, and our feelings are controlled by the mental maps that lie underneath them that we can't see and we're not even aware of many times. And that's why the book of Proverbs says there is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is a way that leads to death. Why do we, why do we need to turn? Number one, because we have gone our own way, and although it felt good, although it seemed exhilarating, it was not God's way, and it was not the way that's based on God's truth. It doesn't follow God's word. And this is all about a word that we don't like to hear. We've used it twice because we all fall short. It's, it's a word called sin. Some of you have been part of the Alpha course, a, a discovery course that it talks about what it means to, to, to engage faith in God and what faith in Jesus is all about. And, and a very interesting session in the Alpha Course is, is somewhere about the third or fourth session in where the whole idea of sin is explored. 
and, and, and we have all kinds of ideas about sin. And most of the ideas we have about sin are either, you know, minimizing it a bit. Just, you know, it, yeah, it's, it's a, a boo-boo, an intention, unintentional slip-up. Uh, you, you know, it, it's, it's not really who I am. Just out of character, it just slips up. Or sometimes we get so self-oriented about sin, our mental map is so self-centered, we, we think, well, yeah, sin is something that makes me feel bad. If it makes me feel bad about myself, then it's wrong. And at some point in the discussion, I, I, I like to just throw out another question. Something like, who do you think it should be that gets to define what sin is? Well, that always leads to an interesting discussion or sometimes an awkward silence. You see, intuitively, we have this very strong sense and it's come out big time in the whole Me Too movement, this strong sense that it's the one that's violated that gets to determine if something's wrong, right? So let's push that out a bit. If there is a God who created us to display His wonder, His glory, His beauty, to be His image, His reflection, His representative, to live in relationship with Him, if He's the source of all that and designed the system is not our sin a violation of him? And should he not get to decide what sin is? And if he designed how it should work, would it not be his map that should be programmed into our minds? What God wants for Jonah won't change. And Jonah has slipped into a view of God that's easy to hack especially in this we-are-special culture in which many of us were raised. Jonah's view of God is that God is supposed to validate him. And validating Jonah means that God should affirm his choices and agree with him. I had a neighbor once who, who, who really wanted to do God. And, and he had his own, literally, a, a struck-by-lightning experience that he felt was a miraculous wake-up call from God to get serious with him. But, but as, as we got to talking, it, it's very evident that he didn't want to talk about things like sin. It's too negative. And he said to me, you know, I think you and I have a different view of God. Hmm. And then, in a voice that was clear to me that he felt that I was about to be taught something important I needed to know about God. If I was going to be successful at helping people to, know, to do God, he said, you see, the way I see it is that what God really wants is he wants me to be happy. And his job, being God, is to provide things that will lead me to happiness. After a bit of discussion, I, I said to him, you know, have you ever wondered if, if the kind of thinking you have about God is, is simply a cosmic vending machine? He looked at me in a rather funny way and he said, that's what so-and-so asked me last week. A mutual friend of ours with whom he was also having God discussions. It's like, buddy, you getting the point? Most of us are par as parents figured out, at least practically, that if we let our kids think that our job is simply to make them happy, they've got us wrapped around their little pinky. And we have a tiger by the tail, right? When we come short of or take a different direction from the word God declares, 
from the manual he's given us to, 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 as to what makes life work well. That is sin. The reason we need to turn is because like Jonah, who knows what God wants, he's trying to minimize it, justify his own direction, and use God's word against him. Or like Nineveh, who's big time violating everything that anything, any really true loving God would want. Why do we need to repent and turn? Because the choices we make about the directions are often choices based on a mental map that is distorted, that's short-sighted, that's self-oriented, and it's not the direction we were created for, and it will not take us the distance. But there's more. Why do we need to turn? The other side of the coin, and the beauty of this chapter, this part of Jonah's story, is that we need to turn because with God, there is always another chance. When Jesus came, and after he left, his, his key core human friend, John, writes this, God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but to bring the world back to him. Another one of those core leaders, Peter, in a day when people were saying, hey, we've heard this bit about a day of accountability before God for so long, it's getting old, it's just spiritual hype or religious hucksterism. Peter, who had had his own second chance Jonah experience with Jesus writes this. God is not slow about keeping his promise that there will be a day of accountability. Instead, you got to see that he's being patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. As long as we have breath to breathe and the capacity to think and choose with God, there is another chance regardless of how far we've fallen, regardless of how far off course we feel we've gone, even if you feel you're a hopeless cause, God does not. But Peter goes on and says he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but to ev for everyone to come to repentance. You see, it's easy to see the evil in the world and say if there's a God... How can he look at all the injustice and not do anything about it? Well, he can, and he will. But if God is going to do anything about any evil in the world, he has to do something about all of the evil in this world. Anything and everything that is short of his standards. And that is why he is patient. He's giving everyone a chance to do something about the directions that every single one of us is going in our hearts away from him. He does not want anyone to perish. He's giving us time to turn. Because you see, that word repent, which, which seems so judgmental, is simply the word to turn. In the Greek language in which the New Testament was written, it literally means a reversal of direction. In the Older Testament, the Hebrew, in, in, which is written in Hebrew, it, it's literally the word turn. Turn or return. Come back. And you can't come back without turning around. The reason we can turn is that God is so merciful and full of compassion and he always, always, always gives us another chance. Are you using that chance? 
tell you it's not enough. Here's another reason you can't reach a team. It's because another can does not mean another option. It does not mean God becoming okay with my choices as long as I do some rich religious ritual along with it. A second chance means a chance to turn and go the way God says. Follow his word about how things work, how things really are. That was what Jonah learned. Jonah, you can't come back without doing exactly what I told you to do. You can't return without turning. And some of us are trying to do that. We want to acknowledge God. We, do, we know we need him, but the first step in acknowledging God is saying, you know what, I have been wrong. I have been going in my heart away from God. And that direction is not right. That, that's true in any relationship. You know that. If someone has wronged you, has walked away from you, it's not just a matter of them showing up and saying, I'm back. And it's not even just a matter of saying, I'm sorry. Some of you have been through that ritual with somebody many, many times, and it gets old, right? Genuine turning begins by saying, I was wrong. And I realize it. And I know how it hurt and violated you. Many of us have figured out, like Jonah, how to play the religious game and make it look like we're pointing in the right direction, but in, my heart, in our hearts we know we've either stopped or we're going this way and God's calling that way. Why do I need to turn? Here's another reason. It's because like the king of Nineveh, deep in my heart, I know it's my own know how I think the people of Nineveh got their idea of turning? It, it, was, it was not really in Jonah's message clearly, but it was from Jonah's message, the word that God gave them, gave Jonah to give to them. What was it he said in his message? Forty more days, verse 4, and Nineveh will be, a lot of our translations say overthrown. It doesn't say the word over different word than the word turn that's used later, but it, it means exactly the same thing. I didn't get the words quite right. It sounds like a message of judgment, doesn't it? But here's what the king of Nineveh hears. If what's going to happen is that we will be overturned, maybe, maybe, maybe there will be a chance for us if we voluntarily, voluntarily choose to make a radical turn. His reasoning is this. What kind of a God would send a warning if the purpose is not to give us a chance? This guy's a king. He knows how kings think. If kings want to conquer somebody, they surprise them. You don't send a warning to someone you want to destroy. You send a warning to someone you want to give another chance. Who knows? The king of Nineveh gets what Jonah is afraid he would get, that the God on whose behalf he has come is a God of mercy, a God of compassion, who desperately wants to find a way, to, to help us find a way to come back home. How do we turn well? Let's just process that for a bit. 
Number two. Well, we have to see clearly what the king says when he's told us, told about this message. What does the king say? He says, it says, when the news reached the king, he got up from his throne. If if you've been with us through this journey with Jonah, you will be thinking this morning, got up? Remember Jonah, chapter 1? God called him to rise up, go up. Jonah went back. He's already a little different than Jonah, isn't he? He gets up from his throne and he takes off, literally lays aside his royal robes. Laid aside? That word is a common symbolism, symbolic word in the Old Testament, a word that refers to putting away things that keep you from God. So what's with that? God doesn't like robes? No. What the king is doing is he's taking off what was for him the symbol of his rule, his control. The king is laying aside what Jonah has refused to let go of, control over what is right for him. The pagan king intuitively responds appropriately to God even though he doesn't know if it will do any good. The prophet of God refuses to respond appropriately to God, even though he should know it's the only thing that can do any good. That word repent, to turn. For some of us, it's one of those words we want to avoid. And for for others of us, it's it's a word we tend to use to beat people up with. We tend to think of it simply in emotional terms, you know, turn or burn. And, and, and we measure whether a person is turned by the amount of tears. So we need to explore this word turn a bit more. I, I love the, the, the picture that Jan Hedinger um, puts out in his book called Follow Me. He describes three levels of turning to God. Three stages. It first comes at a more surface awareness level and slowly, sometimes painfully, takes us deeper as the coverings on each surface get pulled off. The first level he describes of is described as the frustration level. We're frustrated with the way things are going. We say, I'm sick of it. And our prayer is the most common prayer ever heard. Help. (laughs) I need help, right? We expect God to do something, and because He loves us, He often does something to help us keep our head above water, but what He wants us to do is to come to Him with our deeper issues that are underneath that. And because we have turned, at least in a little way, there, there, there seems some relief for a while. But the more we are exposed to the truth of God and the love of God, the more ownership we take of our situation, the more we are pulled deeper, the more clearly we see in the mirror and, and we move to that, that level of guilt, of understanding true guilt. Guilt is just simply the gap between me and God. I'm not there. It's, it's a recognition. It's simply a recognition that I am guilty before God. It's not a feeling. When we really look into our hearts and see how far we are in here from really reflecting God and who He has called us to be, it's, it becomes overwhelming. And we recognize that we need more than help. 
And our prayer becomes, oh my goodness, Lord, I recognize that I need to be forgiven. I need a second chance. But we still have not come to the base of true repentance. The third level is where the king of Nineveh takes us. It's the control level. I surrender. I give up inner control or control of my inner self to the one who died to make me his. I need a new leader, and that leader can't be me. In the book of Colossians, it, it describes the good news of Jesus as this, that God delivered us from the domain, from the kingdom of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom, transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. A kingdom is a place where there's a king, someone who's in charge. This is where the changing the mental map in the GPS begins. You can't have faith in Jesus and what he's done without turning over, giving up control. This is the point in which we realize, oh my goodness, there's only two options, being overturned or turning over. And it's what the king of Nineveh, not the prophet of God, who it seems only went halfway, the king of Nineveh teaches us about turning. And this is why those people who are called God's people Sometimes they're seen as hypocrites because the people of God tend to use God words without realizing that everybody's looking at them and saying, really? Those are the two questions this episode speaks to. But there's one more thing that it points to that helps us to see why turning is worth it. You see, the human hero in this episode is not God's prophet. It's the king of Nineveh. The human hero is a king who took a huge risk, risk and said, who knows, God may turn and not overturn us. And what did he do? He took off his royal robe and he humbled himself. The big hero is not that human hero, though. It's the God whose mercy triumphs over judgment. And how could that happen? Because not only can he do something about evil, not only will he do something about evil, he has done the thing about evil that we need to turn. Remember that statement we read from the book of Isaiah as why we need to turn? All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Some of you said, finish the sentence, Mel. Okay, we'll finish the sentence because that's not all he says. Look ahead. He's looking ahead to another king who would take off his robe and says, yet the Lord laid on him, Jesus, the sins of us all. Jesus laid aside his royal robes, the outward symbols of his rulership over everything so that he could absorb on himself, carry on his shoulders the consequence of my waywardness so that when we turn to God, we don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to defend ourselves. We can simply hear God say, welcome back home.
we acknowledge before God that we have been wrong, what we discover, like Jonah, is that God has been there all along, protecting us, even in the stupid decisions we've made. And to some degree, he's been protecting us from the full consequences of the decision we've made. And we discover that if there are 100 steps between me and God, God has already taken 99. Uh-uh. God has taken 100 steps. All I have to do is turn. And he will say, welcome back home. I love the first words of the king of Nineveh's conclusion. Who knows? He's what we would call an agnostic, but he channels his agnosticism in the right direction and discovers in his own experience the God who has turned, the God who when we simply take the one step of turning toward him, which means turning away from the direction we've been going, we discover the God who has taken a million steps toward me. And because of the true king who laid aside his robe, I no longer have to say, who knows? I love not only what the king said, I love what he did, because what he did points to what God calls us to do. He, he made a public, symbolic gesture. He took off his robe and put on sackcloth. You see, in response to the, to the new king who welcomes us back home based on his taking off his robes, God calls us to declare our own turning with, with an act as well. It's called baptism. Before God and people, baptism is simply an act of saying, I'm surrendering to the king who made me like him and for him, who calls me to be him and who died to make me his and has risen again and is in me and I want to live, point my direction in his way. It's a beautiful, it's a powerful declaration. Have you made that declaration? I have a teenage, a young teenage granddaughter in Washington State who texted me this week and said, Grandpa, I'm getting baptized this Sunday. I wrote her back with this text. Wow. I still remember getting baptized when I was in 11th grade. That would be about 100 years ago. It was a much more important milestone for me in my relationship with God than I realized it when I di- realized when I did it. I often looked back on it for my next few years as an older teenager when I was tempted to go off track and I said to myself, "Nope. When I got baptized, I meant what I said that I would live for him. I'm not going to go back. I will keep going." step. It's a declaration to your own heart. It's a declaration to others. It's a declaration to God. We're going we're gonna to invite people to be baptized in the next uh, month or so, probably in January. We'll have a, a, a baptism service, and, and we're going to invite you to do that. Would you, would you consider doing that and talk to somebody about it? We'll, we'll give some opportunities for you to declare that you want to do that. Worship team, would you come forward? There's two groups of people here today. Some of us are the people of Nineveh who have never said to God, I'm going to follow you, who have never truly surrendered to God. Some of us are Jonah's. 
we have made that statement, but we've become directionally challenged. Not that we don't know it, we do know it. But we're avoiding dealing with some specific directional issues in our life, some specific actions we know we're falling short and slipping away. Simply things that we feel we can't get up, give up, or are too embarrassed to admit. Maybe we're fo- focusing so much, hanging on too tight on what we need to turn from, and, and we're not looking enough on what we need to turn to. A cross of freedom, not of judgment. The God who loved us with a never-ending love and calls us to never-ending glory. Maybe we're focusing so much on our way, our self-identity, what we have come to see as our needs, that we recognize today, yep, this is a control thing. We're going to sing a song of reflection that some of the words say, have you come to the end of yourself? Jesus is calling You may not quite be at the end of yourself, but why let it get there? Why not make the turn before you're forced to? So whether it's a little turn with a little thing, whether it's a big turn, let's stand together. And and if you know in your heart that you need to declare some kind of a turn, would you just come forward and just stand at the cross and and just silently pray and say, Lord Jesus, I surrender to you today once again. We'd encourage you to talk to somebody about that to just help hold yourself accountable. But would you do that before God this morning? Dave and I are going to be at either side of the cross down the, down the way. And if you, if you want to pray with us, feel free to do that. Come to the altar. This is no longer an altar where I have to sacrifice something. This is an altar, a cross, where God has sacrificed himself so that I could embrace that all I have to Jesus Christ. Will you turn? Declare your turn. Come to the altar.